John 13, 35. It says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And you love one another, and I, I believe that we as a church strive to accomplish that, and I actually believe that we're doing a pretty good job. We're not perfect um, at doing that at all, but we, um, we're, we're doing a pretty good job. But that being said, as we come into 2020, whew, this is the first time I've preached in 2020, and excited to do so. We're starting a new, a new series that's um, going to take us for a while to get through. And the reason we're, we're going to be going through the book of Romans, something I've never preached through before, I've never taught through before, so I, it's exciting to be able to, to, to kind of dig in and, uh, and preach. And one of the main reasons we're, we're, we're speaking out of Romans is because um, as we come into 2020, our, our focus this year um, is going to be to go deeper into discipleship. Our, our mission as a church is to reach with the gospel those near to us but far from Christ. And I believe that you are doing a good job at that. It's an outreach, it's an outreach approach. We want to reach out and love the people with the gospel of Christ. And that is, that is um, translating into people coming to know Jesus. Um, and, and with that, we want to be able to now take that to the next step and offer a little bit more depth in our in our time together and discipleship in our time together. And we'll be defining what discipleship actually means because discipleship is kind of like saying, you know, I love you. Um, it, it, or I love, you know, we say love. It's such a watered down word. I, I, I love you. That means something when I tell it to my wife. I love you. It means something when I tell it to you. Um, I love to look at old pictures when I had hair. That, that says something. You know, there's just diff different ways to define it. And it's the same thing with discipleship. With discipleship, there are a lot of different ways to define it, and we're going to define it biblically as we go through this, through this study. So um, we're going through the book of Romans for a reason, and the reason we're going through the book of Romans is, is because I feel like it will definitely aid us in a discipleship track. In this book of Romans, some of the commentators call it Faith's Fort Knox. If you could only have one book of the Bible, most theologians and commentators and Christians alike would say, if you could only have one, if you had, to, you had to throw out all the other 65, if there's just one book of the Bible, it would be the book of Romans. That's because Romans captures the, the full picture of the gospel. It teaches the core foundation, fundamentals of the faith, as well as the deep, rich truths that we could meditate on for years. It's a little bit daunting to go into Romans because there are many, um, there are many churches that they start Romans and they're still, it's like a Dr. Bob expositor Bible class. They start in Romans and they're still in Romans 12 years later, working their way through it. We're not going to do that. Um, I, Lord willing, we're not going to do that. Um, but, but it is exciting to go into this. And this book has radically impacted some of the, the individuals that have radically impacted the church and our faith. For example, Martin Luther. Martin Luther uh, came to know Christ through the reading of the Gospels, or through the reading of the, new, uh, the book of Romans. And he, he wrote a commentary that was uh, one of the most uh, well-known well and well-sought-after well, uh, commentaries on the book of Romans. So, so well-known was it as John Wesley, if you might have heard that name. John Wesley, he was a missionary and he was a preacher during the time of the Great Revival. And when he heard a message on just the preface that Martin Luther wrote to the commentary to the book of Romans, just the preface, this is what John Wesley said. He said, I felt my heart 
strangely warm. I felt I did trust Christ and Christ alone at that moment for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and he had saved me from the law of sin and death. Martin Luther, John Wesley, something a little bit more contemporary than that, but um, Corey Tenboom, one of our elders, has been reading a lot of Corey Tenboom, and, and he's been sharing that with us, so I've been looking at some things, and I looked into her life a little bit this week, and I found that if you don't know her, she, she um, and her family during the, the, the war with the Nazis and the Holocaust era, she and her family hid, um, she hid Jews in her home to save them from annihilation, ended up getting caught and having to go to a concentration camp. And she writes in, uh, in her biography, The Hiding Place, her, her experiences there. And uh, she saw some horrific things while she was there in those concentration camps. And after, after the war was all over, she's out on the street one day. And as she's out on the street, she hears someone that, that um, is trying to get her attention. And, and this person saying, hello, 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 ma'am, hello, ma'am. And so she turns to to greet this person, and she turns and she looks to him. Immediately, she recognized the face of this man as the one in whom she watched horrifically torture her sister in one of these concentration camps. And she was flooded with emotion, as you can imagine, when she's looking this man in the face. And as she's she's kind of talking to the Lord, like, what should I do? Um... The book of Romans comes to her mind, specifically the the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And she says this, she says, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit, which was given me to thank you. Father, that your love in me is stronger than my hatred towards any man. That same moment, I could shake hands with that man, she says, and it was this, as if I felt God's love stream through my arms, and I said to him, brother, I forgive you for everything. You see, right before that, he had come up to her, and he, he came up to her, and he said, Mrs. Timboom, I don't know what he, he whatever he called her, um, Mrs. Corey, I, 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 since I've come out of the concentration camps, and since we've come through this time, I've come to know Jesus. And I've asked God to bring into my life some of the victims in which I I treated so horribly because I wanted to tell them I'm sorry. And he brought you to me. And then she went on and Romans 5 came into mind. Scripture always has the opportunity to bring great change in our life, transformation. It did for these individuals that we just talked about. And it's my hope and my prayer as we as a church body open up this book of Romans together. We will will, um, dive deeper into um, our knowledge of the scriptures and our our adoration, our love for our Lord in the process as well. So with that, let's pray. And then if you're not there, you can turn to Romans. We're going to start in chapter one. Heavenly Father, I, I, I come, we come to you with, with gratitude. We come to you with, um, with open hearts, and we ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, would do the work that only you can do, and that's bring about, bring about change, bring about hope, bring about correction. Lord, we just ask that you would provide for us whatever it is that we need in order to live more solely devoted in fidelity to you. We love you, we thank you, and um, we pray this in our matchless Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
going to read. We're going to read, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, I will be using for the totality of this study the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. There are a lot of really great translations out there, and I get a lot of questions from people. Well, which translation should I use? And um, there are some bad translations and, and paraphrases per se, but the majority of them are great. But my response is, is just, just pick the one that you'll read. That's, that's the way you should pick your translation, as long as it's one of the major ones. But, all right. I, that was my prompt to get moving. Okay. So uh, you can follow along as, as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, according to his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, we're going to start by looking. We're going to start by looking at a little bit of background to this letter and a little bit about the author in particular. What we find here, we find out right off the bat is that this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus who's a set apart for the gospel. Now, when we think of Paul, we oftentimes think of Paul as this guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament, this great missionary man of God. However, Paul was not always a great man. We, we first meet Paul in Acts chapter 7, and his name then is Saul, and he is a chief persecutor of Christians. In, in fact, at that moment in Acts 7, he is giving his, his approval of the death of 
or the execution of Stephen, who was the church as we know it today. Stephen was the very first deacon ever instilled. And Paul was the one, Saul, giving the approval for him to be murdered, him to be killed. So Paul, at this point, he's not only not a Christian, he's a persecutor of Christians, and in turn, he's a persecutor of Christ. And in, in this letter to Romans, um, though we see him, we see him in verse 1, and what does he do? He, he was a persecutor, but now he is a servant. He goes from being a persecutor to a servant of Christ. And what, what happened to him? What happened? Well, what happened was what's happened to many of you. What happened was is he met Jesus. He met Jesus along the road to Damascus. He was on his way to persecute, to hurt, to maim, to, to, to mute, to murder more Christians. And in that process and in his way, he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, at that moment in time, Jesus removed him from the road that he was on, and he led him on a path towards his kingdom, his kingdom of heaven. And so it was through this encounter with Christ that Saul was then changed to Paul. He was changed from persecuting Christians to believing in Christ instead and proclaiming the gospel that everyone would know and believe and might believe in Christ Jesus. So, so God's power radically transformed Saul into Paul. And as we, as we live life, submit ourselves to God's word, to the working of his Holy Spirit, he does the same thing for you and me. He powerfully transforms our, our life. And so as we, go, as we go through this letter of Romans, what we're going to learn, we're going to learn a lot of things. Um, one of the things we'll learn is just the, 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 the process or the means or the, the methods in which God uses to bring about transformation because the ways in which we think that God might bring about revelation or change in our lives may be different than what we're expecting. And so Paul, that's what he does. He introduces this topic he's going to be talking about um, right away. And it's the, the central topic of the entire book. It's the topic of the gospel, the gospel of his son, God's son, Jesus. So in this letter, Paul is going to, to lay out what we know as the most detailed theological description of the gospel ever everywhere and so it, it starts back and he will he'll, he'll walk us through he'll walk us through from the the beginning through the end um, he'll, he'll start in genesis he'll walk us through the psalms and isaiah and and malachi he'll walk us through the last book of the old testament and and he does this for the benefit of the church knowing that the church needs to understand its history if it's going to if it's going to be faithful to the, the fullness of the gospel message. So um, one of the key themes also that we'll see as we work through this book of Romans is we'll see very clearly the, the human and the divine element. We'll see the divinity of Christ Jesus portrayed, and we'll also see the humanity of Christ Jesus, as, as Paul shares it there in verses 3 and 4 when he says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God, verses 3 and 4. So he informs his readers here that the Messiah who has come, who has been prophesied about, who's come through this pathway of Jewish history, it's not just for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles. It's also for the Greeks. Um, it's for all people. That was very, very huge. The gospel is the very good news. And that was what Paul was trying to point out. 
he's pointing out, he's proclaiming, he's preaching that, that faith here that leads to transformation in our life, it's, it's not just for the rich, it's not just for, it's not just for the uh, affluent, it's for all people. And that's a message that up until that point was not, and up until Christ came, was not very well accepted or understood. So, so here he is, he's right in this church. We know what, what the church is. It's the, the church in Rome. And uh, what's interesting about this is, is Paul himself, and you saw it there, he's never actually been to Rome. He desires to go to Rome, but he himself hasn't yet been to Rome. Um, we don't know exactly how the church in Rome even got started. What, what is assumed that happened is in Acts chapter 2, we have what's called Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit ascends upon the church and, and uh, breaks out in, in, in the hearts of thousands of people. And, and it goes forth, and the church is planted as we know it today. And so some of these Christians were at Pentecost that lived in Rome, and they went home. And when they went home, they started a growth group. And very seriously, they started a growth group. It might not have been called growth group, but that's what they started. And they started to sit in circles in their homes and pray together and open up the scriptures together, um, endure the persecution together. And so Paul um, desires, as, as any good pastor would do, he desires to be with his, his people, the people of, and the family of God. And so what he does here is he's telling them, I really would love to come to you and I hope to come to you soon, but, but I'm not going to be able to get there right away. So that's virtually why I'm writing this letter. And I'm writing this letter, Paul says, for a lot of different reasons, um, one of the main reasons is, um, well, there's a number of main reasons, but one is, is that uh, he's pointing out that Christians are saints. You see that in, in verse 7 there. Uh, he tells them that they're loved by God, and he says that they're called to be saints. Now, uh, some of you are raised in the Catholic background, and you know that um, in a Catholic understanding of sainthood, um, you, you, have to, you have to complete two miracles in order to be, in order to be or grant two miracles in order to be considered a saint. Well, the Bible teaches a different message than that. The Bible says something much different about becoming a saint. The way that Paul taught this and the way that Scripture teaches this, that to be a saint is to be a Christian. That is, if you are a Christian, it means you've received Christ Jesus as your Savior, and the Bible calls you a saint. You don't need to be dead to become a saint. You don't have to do two miracles or even one miracle to be a saint. You need to simply put your faith in Christ Jesus and receive him as your savior, and you too are a saint. Your, your kids or your spouse might be looking at you and saying, ha, ah, yeah, right, yeah. But truly, that's what's taking place. When Christ comes in, as Philippians 1 tells us, he, God looks upon his people, his children, and when he looks upon us, he doesn't see our iniquity. When he looks upon us, he sees the filter of Jesus Christ. And so he sees this, us, therefore, as perfect and holy as his children. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We're seen as saints because we don't feel like saints. Um, so these are just kind of just I'm kind of flying through some introductory points here as we as we get into this. But um, Paul introduces himself. He introduces his credentials, and he informs us who he is writing to and and who they are in Christ. And and then also here, what he what he's doing is he's he's both giving and he's receiving encouragement we talk we're going to talk about discipleship uh, discipleship a lot and with this with discipleship is it's all about walking together with one another 
being able to, being able not only to, 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 to receive encouragement, to receive edification, but also to, to give it, to be engaged mutually. That's part of what the church is called to do. You can see it here in Paul as he, as he talks, and he, he walks through this, this, this um, letter, and he'll, we'll see it all throughout. And encouragement comes in a lot of different forms. Sometimes encouragement comes through tough love. Other times it comes through a warm hug. But it comes in a lot of different ways, and we're going to see a number of those ways as we move along. Now, in the last two verses of this passage, the last two verses of this passage, we kind of get to um, what really the, entire, the entirety of the rest of this letter is about. We come to verses 16 and 17. And what, what we see with this in verses 16 and 17 is that Paul is strongly exhorting the church in Rome to be not ashamed of the gospel. It says here, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Pretty straightforward message. What Paul's saying at this moment in time, what he's saying is that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God to live life eternally and to live life today in an empowered way. Now, I believe that most of us cognitively or in our heads understand that, believe that statement to be true. But I do also know that practically it's, it's one in which we can struggle to live out in, in, our, in our life. And one of, the ways, one of the ways why this is a struggle is because we live in a, in a world that has really conditioned us. And if we were really honest, this world we live in has a much greater, um, a much greater impact on our, on our lives and on our thinking and even on our faith than maybe we're willing to admit. There's a, a book that came out by um, one that is known today, I think, amongst most, uh, most uh, orthodox Christians to, to be a heretic. The book was Love Wins. And this book, it basically goes through, and the basic premise of the book is that, hey, everybody is going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven, and if you, even if you don't believe in Christ when you die, you'll have this opportunity to kind of work your way to heaven through a different pathway than Christ. And, and so, not as much as we may want to believe about that. So, so, hey, we don't need to really worry about telling people about Jesus. We don't need to really worry about being ashamed of the gospel of God because you know what? The gospel of Christ Jesus is the fact that Jesus came to this earth to die for mankind. Well, if people don't accept that message, then they can find another message or another way. Scripture does not teach this. Scripture doesn't teach that point of view at all. Um, Hebrews 9, man is destined to die once, and after that he is to face judgment. Christ Jesus as well, um, he also tells a story uh, in Luke 16, I'm not going to read it, but Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, and both of them die, and Lazarus is in paradise, and the rich man is in, in hell. Um, this rich man who's in agony asks Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water to cool his tongue because he's in agony. And Abraham said, it's not possible because there's this great chasm between fixed between you and him. Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep and the lost goat in, in uh, Matthew 25, 46. Ultimately, there's a number of cases here, but Paul, when we look at Paul, Paul's not ashamed. 
Paul's not ashamed of this gospel to preach it in its entirety. He's not ashamed at all to preach it to those he's coming in, in contact with. He knows that the gospel is the only hope for everyone who believes. Everyone. And it is important for everyone who believes. This is why it's so important for the church to reach not with good works, but to reach with the love of Jesus, to reach with the gospel, those who are near to them but far from Christ. That's the whole point. Romans 10, 14, we'll get to that. A long time down the road. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? See, Paul, he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows that this is the message for everyone and he is going to preach it to everyone as he is able to because he wants everyone to come into contact with that beauty, with that truth. Now, how does this kind of apply, this, this idea? Um, I'll ask a question. Um, I'll ask a question and then I'm going to pause for just a moment and I'll give you an opportunity to let it churn over in your mind. If you'd like to close your eyes, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, I want to ask you this question. Am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed of the gospel? I don't believe Paul would have written this so forcefully if he didn't believe it was a real temptation for us, for the Romans and for, for all Christians throughout the ages. It's written because it's a temptation. It's written because it's a reality that that can be the very seduction that keeps followers of Jesus from following Jesus, from being ashamed. And so what is it about the gospel that can tempt people to feel ashamed? I'm going to point out a few things, and these things might bother you. It's probably not the best way to end a sermon, <laughs> but, but it's true. So I'm going to go into them. Um, what are some of the ways in which one could, whether Christian or cultural people, could be ashamed of the gospel, and why would they be? Because this is why. Because, oops, I put the wrong slide up. The gospel tells us that we are spiritual failures. That's what the gospel tells us. Jesus did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are spiritually sick. He didn't come to coach people in their, to fulfill their like spiritual potential. Um, they didn't coach them to be greater at success, he came for people who had no spiritual potential. He came for spiritual failures. Don't be mad at me, but failures like you and like me. That's who he came for. And the only way to be saved is by accepting a free gift. That's the only way to be saved. That is the good news. That's the gospel. But it's also offensive news. Timothy Keller says, a pastor in New York and a writer, he says, this offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over those who are less moral than them. The gospel 
tells us that we're spiritual failures. That's offensive. It's one reason why someone might be ashamed of it. The gospel tells us that we are wicked people. We're wicked people. It doesn't just say that we've all made mistakes. It, it, it doesn't say we, we could just, just do a little bit better. It really levels the pay, playing field by saying that apart from God, we are utterly helpless and ultimately we're utterly wicked. So wicked, in fact, that only, only the death of Jesus could save us. That's how wicked we are. Only his death. And this definitely offends people. This offends the popular belief um, in the innate goodness of humankind. We call it humanism today. Or the belief that we just need to get in touch with our inner self. Just need to listen to our hearts. Because really, we're just, we're all good people. Well, that's not what the gospel says. And I'm glad it doesn't because I wouldn't want God to send his son to be horrifically murdered if I'm good enough to do it myself. Thirdly, why is the gospel so offensive? Um, it's so offensive because the gospel says that many good people are going to hell. That's offensive. That's a, that's a difficult pill to swallow. We were talking in an elders meeting yesterday about the fact that, I'm not even going to mention the name, but one of, one of uh, the pillars of, of our faith, who he wrestled with this question towards the end of his life, got seduced into thinking that maybe this... this this is true. It's not true if, it's not true if, uh, if you're reading the same Bible that, that the rest of us have. The, the religious views of our society assume more often that good, sincere people are going to be okay in the end. Maybe, maybe God just graves things on a curve. Maybe he's at the top of the mountain and we can all just do our best efforts to get there, whether it's the pathway of Christ or another path, pathway. But the gospel truth, it's, it's jarring and it's not an easy road. It's not. Good moral people are not actually good moral people. It's nice to be nice, but Jesus did not come to bring nice people to heaven. He came to save sinners from hell. That's why Jesus came. Um, God is the only one that can provide salvation, and if you're going to receive it, you have to do it his way, which is ad admitting that you can't do it on your own, that you only have him to cry out to, to fall into his lap. You can try it on your own, but it's emptiness. And the fourth one, and I just thought this is a high note to end our sermon on today, the gospel tells us, and the gospel can be offensive because the gospel tells us that suffering is normal for the Christian. It's normal. It's not the exception to the rule. It is the rule. Followers of Christ are going to experience suffering, hardship. And we, as his followers, should expect it. This offends people who want salvation to be easy. They want salvation to be comfortable. They want, they want their faith to tell them all the good things about themselves. Well, no, Christianity puts our focuses on the goodness of God and what that means for us to have a daddy who we always have to hold us.
care for us. It's his goodness that we rely on. Our faith, it's not a faith that seeks out pain. It's not a faith that seeks out hurt. But it is, it is a faith that says, like Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's going to happen. Hurts will come from all different directions in our lives, and we will suffer. And many of us, even right now, are suffering in a number of different ways. And if that can in any way serve as a, as a means of encouragement to you, I hope it does. Um, because, see, the type of suffering that we experience as followers of Jesus, um, in the midst of hurting, we can still come to a place of a joyful spirit. That the pain and the hurt that we might feel, uh, the circumstances surrounding our life when we feel like we're drowning in what might be an unending sea of despair, we know that we have a Savior who holds us into the hollow of his hands that we can lean on, that we can rest to, and a Savior that tells us that we're part of a kingdom that doesn't end, that this life that we live in is simply a blip in eternity. And our present sufferings are worth nothing comparing to the riches of the glory of which found in faith in Jesus Christ moving forward. And that's a great encouragement. But that's offensive to most. It's offensive. The gospel is offensive. If we try to make it nice, we're doing it a disservice. There are plenty of reasons why Christian people and contemporary people are offended by the gospel. But to be not ashamed of the gospel means that you recognize it is an unpopular characteristic, and with that, it still needs to be proclaimed faithfully. To be faithful to gospel means you recognize that it's an unpopular position. You don't try to sanitize it. You let it be what it is. Paul knew that. He knew that the gospel message would offend everyone because he wasn't ashamed of it. Because he knew that in it was found the power of God and the power of life, the gospel. It's a counterintuitive, as I think maybe popular culture would say today. Um, one of the, and we all have cell phones, or most of us have cell phones. The, the problem with, with, with cell phones, or any telephone for that matter, is you have to get the number exactly right. I don't know if you knew this, but um, you have to get it right. You can, you can get almost every point right. You can be close, you can be in the vicinity, but if you hit just one wrong number, it doesn't matter, Right? You end up dialing somebody else. You get a wrong digit, and it doesn't connect you to the one that you're trying to call. It's just a complete miss, even though it's just one number. And this is a helpful image of what Paul is saying here. He's saying this about the gospel. He's saying, you might not like the message, but it is the only message that connects you to the power of God. That's the gospel. If you think other messages connect you to the power of God, that's not the gospel. And because of that, not only was Paul unashamed, Paul was eager. He was excited to share the gospel because despite what culture said, he knew it was the power of God. He knew it was what we needed. We need the gospel. We need the hope of salvation. So offensive or not, 
Paul was eager to share, to proclaim, to herald this message. The question is, are we, are you, or are you ashamed? You see, the opposite of being ashamed of the gospel isn't proud to be a Christian. That's not the opposite of saying I'm proud to be a Christian is not the opposite of being ashamed of the gospel. The opposite of being ashamed of the gospel is being passionate to spread it, to be passionate to let others know about it because you know, you're eager to let people know that it is the power of God for the salvation of all, all people. How great is that? It is the power. I'm thankful for it, and even though it's an offensive message, man, it's a great message. It's a message that brings hope, it's a message that brings joy, and it's a message that brings life, and yes, it's offensive, but yeah, it's, it's my message, it's, it's, it's my hope, and it's yours too, and it's God's way. It's God's way. Would you please stand with me as we, we implore the Lord to help us not be ashamed and to live and proclaim passionately the, the truth of this message? Hmm. Father, I absolutely confess. I confess for my own self, and I confess on behalf of my flock and your family, your church, that we... We struggle with this. We live in a, a world that, that has conditioned us to go with the flow. We live in a world that has conditioned us not to, not to fight back, to just, just to take, to, to not be offensive in any way. And maybe there's a place for some things with that. And, and yet what we're confessing today is whether it's offensive or not, to people, we know it is the very thing in which all people need. We need you. We need you in our lives. And we know the only way that that happens is how you said it's going to happen, and that's by placing our faith in your son that you sent to die for no other reason than to let his sacrifice bring us life. And we thank you for that. We rejoice in that. We, we, we bask in its hope, and, and we are excited to passionately proclaim this through word and through deed as we look to reach with your gospel those that are near to us but far from you. Lord, there's there, there so much ahead of us. We ask as a church too, Lord, just as this year, we, we ask that you would provide all we need to build a facility over across town that but it's not the facility we're excited about. It's the, it's the proclamation of this gospel to the people that will fill that place that we care most about. We care about the faces, the heads, the hearts, the hands of those in our community that are hurting and lost and trying to, trying to fix it with a, with a pseudo gospel. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.